Spain had its own version of 9-11. They call it 3-11. I'm Rick Steves. On the morning of March 11, 2004, explosions rocked Madrid's commuter train system. Like our 9-11, these terrorist attacks shook the dynamics of Spanish politics and society. Spain is more than flamenco and tapas. Today, we'll focus on some contemporary issues facing the country. I've invited my friend Carlos Galvin from Madrid to tell us about Spain's version of the War on Terror, his country's role in the European Union, the national debate about traditional bullfighting, the political legacy of Francisco Franco, and other ways modern times are changing Spanish society. And of course, we'll also talk about some of the must-see destinations for us travelers in Spain and the cultural tidbits that make it so unique. España. It has lots to offer, and so does the hour ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're going to Spain. And I've got with me a good friend who's helped me for... 10 years now, lead tours around Spain and update my guidebook and so on, Carlos Galvin. Thank you very much for joining us, Carlos. Thanks, Rick. You live in Madrid now. Yeah, we live right in the center. And where, where were you raised? I was raised in Madrid. Uh, I lived uh, for a few years outside of Madrid uh, in uh, France for th- four years, one year in the But UK. in Spain, you, you are yeah. a Madrid boy. Just in Madrid, yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the regions of Spain because I get a feeling that a lot of Spain is overlooked. There's distinct regions. It's not just, I mean, there's like four different languages, right? Yeah. Uh, actually, there's five. Oh, really? Okay. Tell me about uh, these. Yeah. There's 18 different regions in Spain and they are very distinct from each other, uh, partly because they have been isolated by mountains for so many centuries that they have kept their idiosyncrasy, uh, oftentimes their language. Mm-hmm. So if I say Castile, what is Castile all about? Castile is the plateau. It's the region that has given the name to the language is the region Castilian. That, Castilian? Castilian. So that's, that's the main, that's the, uh, the mainstream kind of a Spanish language. Yeah. Then. Yeah, okay. The region of castles, uh, the region where most of the reconquest, that war that took 800 years for the Christians to expel the Moors from the peninsula, um, most of the battles took place in Castile. Therefore, uh, Castile took the name from all those castles that were defense points. So those castles go back to the European push to get the Muslims back into Africa. That's right. After this uh, 711, when they came for the, na- for the following 800 years, the Christian kingdoms are getting partners with each other to try to get the so the, 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 the threat of the Moors, the Muslims, really united Europe. Absolutely. In a time when Europe would otherwise be divided. Mm-hmm. People were crusading from other parts of Europe. Because during this period, the the Muslims were like knocking on the door of Vienna, coming in from the east, and coming in from Morocco and actually uh, occupying Spain, Portugal, and parts of France. Mm -hmm. So uh, you got Castile, lots of castles. So Castile, lots of castles. Andalusia, um, it's the region where uh, that you can think of flamenco, of the culture that is more related to the Moors. Um, it's, a, it's a region with a lot of sunshine and, and beautiful uh, orchards and lots of olive trees. Now, to um, me, this is the quintessential Spain, sort of the, yeah, in the in American tourist exactly, mind. Exactly, yeah. That, that's, find that? that's the Spain that has been kind of sold to the world uh, yeah. in the last 40 years. Andalusia. Andalusia, yeah. Not and- Andalusia. Andalusia. Nobody, exce- no Spaniard would say Andalusia. Uh, well, the people in the south, yeah. In Andalusia, they would say Andalusia. Was oh, that right? Yeah. But you're from Castile. R- right. And in Castilian dialect, it would be Andalusia. Mm-hmm. Barcelona. Yeah, it's a different way of pronouncing the... the uh, Buenos dias. Bu- Buenos dias. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so there's these differences. Yeah. I, that's good to know because I, th- I thought Andalusia was wrong, but it's uh, only the Madrid way to pronounce it. Andalusia. That's right. Okay. And th- that's why most, most of the people who went to, the, uh, to South America were from the, the Andalusia region. And that's why in Mexico and other parts of the uh, South America, uh, they pronounce the th like S, Andalusia. Ah. Okay. Because a lot of them came from that region. I so want to get more into that Latin stuff later, okay. but let's finish the uh, regions. Mm-hmm. You got Galicia up in the northwest. So then Galicia is a complete different uh, world because when I play music from Galicia, people think it's Irish music. Uh, they play bagpipes there. 
they drink uh, cider, they have a, a, a complete different culture from the rest of Spain. The famous city is Santiago de Compostela. San James of Compostela, yeah, because uh, because of the pilgrim way. The big pilgrim way. Yeah. Throughout the Middle Ages from Paris, basically, they walked the pilgrims all the way to Santiago de Compostela. Mm-hmm. That's right. It became one of the most important pilgrim ways. It's amazing. It's I'm thinking of Spain as hot and dusty, and it is so wet and drizzly and mossy there. All of the stone churches are green with moss. I know, I know. It's, it's wild. <laughs> and like you said, it's where we got the bagpipes and this Celtic influence. I went to a dance club there, just saw a dance club practicing, and they welcomed me to come in and sit there. And it was like, it was like where river dance meets flamenco. Uh, kind of, yeah. It's, it's, and actually, there are some people in Galicia who love flamenco, but, but they have their own individual culture that is so distinct and so different from uh, the flamenco that people are used to. But you had, the, you had that soulful Spanish kind of stuff, and you had the riveting uh, river dance like we know in Ireland. Mm-hmm. There's a wonderful, distinct culture in the northwest of Spain that many people miss. We have the Basque culture. Yeah, the Basque culture is, is, uh, is also a very rainy region with uh, their own idiosyncrasy. That one is probably the most different of all Spanish cultures because we believe they came from the Caucasian uh, mountains. So their language has absolutely nothing to do with uh, Catalonian, Spanish, right. Galician, any, anything Basque. else. They're related to Hungarian and Finnish? Yeah, is that, yeah, yeah. It's a Finno-Ugric language. Mm-hmm. And uh, consequently, the Basques have had the toughest time with uh, Madrid. Integrating, yeah, with the rest of Spain. And another challenge has been the Catalonians. Yeah, yeah. those are the the two regions that uh, seem to be harder to get to a cohesion. Uh, I mean, I I don't think they are really interested in getting to any kind of cohesion. Right, Um, so they're they're really interested in being Catalonian and Basque. And Basque, yeah. Now, as Europe unites, I find that these uh, regions that in my lifetime have been in the headlines for their separatist interests... All of a sudden, it's less of an issue because Madrid's not threatened by Barcelona anymore because Europe is ruled as a, uh, from Brussels. Do you find that at all? Does the unification of Europe diffuse the tensions within Spain? I think it does and it doesn't. Uh, right now in Spain, there's uh, quite a bit of political tension because our current government, which is more progressive, if you will, uh, is, is integrating more the Basque Country and the Catalonian uh, region by uh, giving them more more of a leeway to uh, to rule themselves. So the present yeah. government is easier going on this uh, autonomy issue. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but but the conservative group is is completely uh, furious about it because uh, really you know, people conservatives are still upset about this. Then well, they 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 have a fear. They have a fear that Spain is going to disintegrate hmm. if we. Uh, decentralize the power and if we give more power to the regions. Doesn't the government of Europe, the European Union, by its very sort of nature, want to promote regions over nations? I mean, they like the idea of the vivid uh, ethnic groups being vibrant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when, Is that true? I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's my feeling, is that they would pr- promote Catalonian interests. Yeah, I think uh, European Union is supportive of that. Uh, however, the uh, the central government of Spain is, um, uh, I mean... Still defensive then. Yeah, uh, especially when you talk to conservatives that uh, right. don't want to give the uh, like the tax collection and all those uh, really important matters, uh, just put them in the hands of the regions. They want to keep a strong federal government. Now, that recalls, for me, 30, 35 years ago, you had a famous dictator, a fascist, Franco, right? Yeah. And uh, Spain, until relatively modern times, was ruled in this old-school kind of way. When he died, basically, his successor was uh, the choice of Franco, Juan Carlos, but he said, eh, let's go democratic. Is that right? Yeah, and, and that was probably his, uh, his best move. That's why a lot of people in Spain defend the royalty still, because they feel that uh, they contributed and they gave back the, the power of the country to the people. Now, you're probably a little young for this, but I met somebody last summer that said, after Franco, it was sex, drugs, rock and roll. I don't regret anything. I didn't get hurt. Was there this <laughs> sort of a freedom after Franco? Did people just go wild? Or what, what, are, your, what are your memories of that? Or? Yeah, I think it's the pendul, uh, pendulum effect. Yeah, for, for 40 years, there was so much repression, much more than people even think, because it wasn't told to the world. And, and now that we're getting a lot of uh, unclassified papers, we're learning more Really? Well, you know, like concentration camps and stuff like that. Wow. Um, there's now a, like an association called a, a Recovered Memory that is digging into all these papers and trying to explain to people that generation what really happened during those, all those years. People in jail for 20 years after the Spanish Civil War was over. Hmm. Up to 300,000 people put in, in these concentration camps and, and 100,000 of those um, died in there yeah. of hard work and 
Are there still uh, people who are romantic about the Franco days? They're kind of oh, nostalgic yeah. about that? How could you be nostalgic about Franco? Well, I think I think for people like my parents' generation, for example, uh, people who did well and they didn't want to get into politics and they didn't really want to dig into what was going on, uh, they would feel that Franco was a good guy. He was a very paternalistic fellow. and Stability. He, uh, stability, big family. He was partners with the church. Uh, promoting a very good atmosphere for for families to be happy and so conservative, and, you would say. Uh, I is, think, is it that simple? I mean, you got communism on the far left and fascism on the far right, and Franco would be on the right end of that. Yeah, absolutely. What kind of remnants of Franco are there today? I mean, is it is there baggage? Can you still are still people nervous about this? Do they still make their friends depending on their politics this way, or are you beyond that? Well, I think in in my generation, we we try to keep Franco outside of the picture. It's like like long gone. But I think thirty years is not enough to totally digest what went on for 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 another forty years. So you're still sorting it out. So yeah, I think so. Yeah. Now, recent changes. You've had uh, the horrible bombings a couple years ago in Madrid. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How has that changed uh, life in Spain? I mean, it's your it's your nine eleven. What was it? Six months later, what was it? Three eleven or something? Yeah, mm-hmm. we have a nine eleven legacy in our country. Do you have a three eleven legacy in your country, or what's going on now? Yeah, we do. I think uh, I think it has changed the perception of Spanish people. As uh, you know, we never thought that we would be the uh, target of right. you know of some people like Al Qaeda and and well, I don't was it me. clearly Al Qaeda that did it? It's not totally clearly, but it's it's pretty. It's pretty sure. Okay. But now from a travel point of view, uh, are people comfortable? Can you can you oh, check absolutely. a bag at the train station these days? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. See, in, in a lot of places train... that are nervous, you can't check a bag yeah. because they're worried about, about a bomb. You can yeah. actually check a bag at the train oh, yeah. station. Spain is totally safe, and people are traveling all over Spain, and, and the, the probabilities of something like that occurring in, at the time that you're traveling are so slim. That, yeah, and you've got to keep things in perspective. But yeah. after that bomb, you guys elected a, a president who took you out of Iraq, right? Right. So there was a response. Uh, yeah, there was a response, and and he had committed to the to the people of Spain that he would remove the troops from Iraq. Ninety five percent of the people in Spain didn't support our country supporting the Iraq 95. war. You think so? It's ninety five. Uh, it was really high. Well, here's yeah. an example for me when it comes to Spain's approach to American foreign policy. I don't know the exact numbers, but my my feeling is there must be like four million people in Madrid, and three million of them were out at the same time in a rainstorm demonstrating against American foreign policy. Is Absolutely. That, is that right? Yeah. People didn't support this this war. That's unimaginable in our country to have three-quarters of the population out on the streets. That's no exaggeration. No, it's no, it's no exaggeration. You know, everybody was in the streets of Spain. Uh, With anti-American posters. Yeah. Now, and, and I'm an it's American. not really anti-America. Right. That's uh, the question. I'm coming yeah. into Madrid. I mean, why would I want to go to Madrid if three-quarters of those people were just um, screaming obscenities at my, my government, you know? You know, I don't, I don't think. I, I think that's, that's uh, you, you, know, you know that that's not the case. I mean, people in Spain love Americans. Yeah, I do. I know. <laughs> we, we've, been, we've been having uh, American tourists, you know, since the 50s. And people just uh, f- find that relationship a, a very n- nurturing relationship for both people, you know, for Americans and for Spaniards. And uh, a lot of people in Spain just have a devotion for what America represents. Uh, however, the current American politics is not very popular in Spain. Uh, that's probably... Not very. N- not at all. <laughs> not at all. Okay, yeah, 95%, you would say, from your Madrid perspective. Yeah. All right. Well, I think the point is the, the welcome I get in Spain, regardless of my personal politics, is very warm. And I, uh, the more I know Spain, the more I enjoy it. And it's just such an exciting place to go visit. More on Spain with Carlos Galvin and your calls coming right up on Travel with Rick Steves, 877-333-RICK or radio at ricksteves.com. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines, with 4,000 flights to 250 cities in some 40 countries around the world every day. It's easy to book your next flight at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.
Nazywam się Kasia Derlicka, jestem z Warszawy, z Polski i podróżuję z Rickiem Steve'em. And that was Polish for my name is Kasia Derlicka from Warsaw, Poland and I travel with Rick Steve's. Nazywam się Kasia Derlicka, z Warszawy, z Polski i podróżuję z Rickiem Steve'em. Rickiem Steve'em? That's my name in Polish? <laughs> That's your name in Polish. Rickiem Steve'em. <laughs> Dziękuję. Dziękuję. I'm Rick Steves, and today we're discovering what makes modern Spain tick. 877-333-RICK. That's our number at Travel with Rick Steves. And we got some people on the line, and they want to talk to Carlos. I'm talking with my friend Carlos Galvin. Carlos is a local tour guide. He's worked with me for about 10 years. He's got his own travel agency in Madrid. His uh, website is latango.com, L-E-T-A-N-G-O.com. We're talking Spain, and we've got uh, Louis from Murphy, Texas on the line. Uh, is it Louis? Yeah, Luis. Luis, How thanks. Are you, Rick? How are you doing? Good. I'm going to go with my wife for our fifth anniversary to Barcelona uh, this February. And I know, I mean, the usual place, I've been to Barcelona once, a couple of times uh, during summer, but I've never been there during winter. And other than the usual suspects, walking Las Ramblas, going to Sagrada Familia, those places, um, I was wondering what else would be a good idea to do during this time of year. In the winter? Um, other than yes, the sir. typical tourist sites. And, you know, Barcelona, you can do the main sites, of course, all year long. Carlos, any considerations for winter travel in Barcelona? Hi, Luis. Buenos dias. Buenos dias. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, think, I think Barcelona has such a nice weather all year round that uh, you can still do the outdoorsy stuff uh, in winter. And uh, you can play those things by ear, depending on whether you hit a rainy uh, week or not. Um, I like, I personally like the old Gaudí more than, than other things in Barcelona. Um, I think... The, uh, that's the Art Nouveau architect who's yeah, left these uh, melting ice cream type buildings all right. over town, yeah. yeah. From the turn of the century. Um, uh, you have the, um, uh, the, the Picasso Museum is probably uh, one of the jewel. But one thing that is overseen in Barcelona is the Manac Museum, which is uh, the uh, museum of... Uh, Gothic and Romanesque art, and uh-huh. this is a phenomenal sight. Uh, just think about the government of Catalonia removing frescoes from all these little churches in the Pyrenees and bringing them into one single museum so that they weren't sold or stolen in the, the little communities where those churches were built. I think that is a very unique museum that you will probably not find anywhere else in the world. Now, this so. is the Catalan Museum? It's called the Catalonian Museum of Art, and it's on the it's the big, massive building on top of the hill that overlooks uh, Barcelona, right? Right, in Montjuic. Thank you very much, Carlos. Thanks, Rick. And hey. don't, don't miss the paella at Set Portes. That's a that's a great restaurant. Set Portes. Yeah, Set Portes. Excellent. Thank you. Buen viaje. <laughs> Gracias. So. Roseanne in Oradell, New Jersey. Roseanne, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you? We're doing good. <laughs> Hi, Carlos. Buen Hi, Rosanna. Um, Carlos, I've been to Spain uh, on many trips, and um, this year I'm going to Arcos de la Frontera. And I was wondering if there is a central place to um, find out about uh, wineries in that region other than you know, going to maybe the tourist office of Spain. You know, the, there are there are companies that specialize in in wine tours, if if that's what you're looking for. And mm-hmm. um, first of all, for our our listeners, this is Arcos de la Frontera. It's south of uh, Sevilla, right? And it's yes. very near Jerez, which is the sherry capital. So you're between the Rock of Gibraltar and Sevilla in a beautiful town, Arcos de la Frontera. Okay, Carlos. Right. So uh, I think if I was going to do like a wine route, uh, I may do it somewhere in, in other regions of Spain. And I think we're going to be talking a little bit about wine. In the sherry region, I would probably concentrate on, on the sherry wines, mm-hmm. uh, which are the most important wines down there uh, once you're in Jerez. And there's a right. number of sherry calves, do you call them, in Jerez, which is 30 minutes from Arcos. Yeah, and it's a very unique wine. I mean, it's, it's just phenomenal The uh, how how different it is from any other wine and and how it's produced and, and the region is very pretty too. Just don't go in the month of August. <laughs> are there um, some specific um, sherry producers that you are familiar with that do offer tours of uh, the sherry production? Absolutely. Uh, you have probably my favorite one in, in, uh, in uh, Jerez is uh, González Pías. Um, oh, okay. It's one of the oldest, and it's a very pretty uh, winery. Um, it has, you know, some. Uh, I mean, parts of parts of it may be a little bit touristy, but but it's 
overall, I think is the best winery uh, just because it's, it's, it's a gorgeous uh, building. Um, a lot of heritage a, there. You know, it goes back. It's, there's an elegance from the old days in absolutely. these wineries. You can visit the room of um, uh, the, the, uh, the founder of the winery as he left it when he died and he was testing wines. Uh, he dedicated one of his wines to Uncle Jose, uh, Joseph. Uh, in Spanish, is Tio Pepe. Um, oh, I didn't so, know that. So yeah. Tio Pepe and is Tio Uncle Pepe Joseph. Is yeah, still Uncle a Joseph. very popular brand that's sold in Spain. Yeah, it's a very popular brand, mm-hmm. yeah. Roseanne, when you go to Jerez, J-E-R-E-Z, isn't that right, Carlos? Mm-hmm. Jerez, then um, you will go to the tourist office, you pick up a map, and it has it's speckled with little sherry glasses. And each one of those sherry glass icons indicates where there's a sherry uh, cove that welcomes guests. One of the fun things I do in my guidebook research, and Carlos has helped me, is visit all those sherry coves and take the tour and see what they're like and see how they welcome tourists and how well they're equipped to help you in English. Uh, so we would have some advice in my uh, guidebook to Spain. You can also get information on the web, of course, and from the tourist office in Jerez. I would highly recommend tying in the great uh, horse culture there in uh, in Jerez. Tell us about that a little bit. Uh, yeah, the equestrian school, uh, there's a great tradition in the south of Spain of uh, horses that were uh, native horses of Spain, and then they were crossed with the uh, Arabic uh, horses, and they were exported all over the world to the, uh, you know, the Lipazaners are uh, descendants of That's of right, those. it has a connection with the Lipazaners in Vienna. Yeah. Roseanne, does that help you out? Yes, that does. Thank you very much. Good luck on your trip. And I, by the way, I love Arcos de la Frontera. It's my favorite town for a home base in that region. Great. Mm-hmm. I'm right. looking forward to it. Muchas gracias. Okay. Adios. Gracias. Adios, Rosanna. Eric in Felton, California. Thanks for your call, Eric. Hi, Rick. Carlos. Nice to talk to you. Speaking of Jerez, as it was called when I was there 40 years ago, uh, I'm curious about the horse festival in Jerez in the spring and also the spring festival in Sevilla. Uh, 40 years ago when I was in the Navy and there, traveling was one thing. Now, in my 60s, you know, I, we're independent travelers, but is it worth going there on your own during the festivals, or is it better to kind of go off-season? Uh, hi, Eric. Um, I, I, I love the festival in Jerez, the, the horse festival. I think it's probably the best one that you can attend in Andalusia. I don't like the one in Seville so much, and it's not because it's not a great one. It's, a, it's a, an amazing one. But it's, it's so big and so overwhelming that it's hard to have um, the kind of experience that you can have when you're traveling and you don't know the people. Uh, the problem in Seville is that most of the casetas, which are the tents where people are celebrating and they're dancing and they're drinking and, and, and just trying different foods, uh, those are private casetas. So if you don't know anybody, you cannot get in. Right. In, right. Uh, in Jerez, on the country, uh, everything is open to the public. And, and the fair in Jerez is dedicated to the horse. So during the day, everybody uh, brings their, their best horses and their uh, most beautiful carriages, mm. all ornate. And, and it's just a fantastic festival of beautiful color and, and great scenery. And, and all ladies are dressed in these uh, flamenco dresses. And it's just a great festival. I would encourage you to go to Jerez. Mm-hmm. Just a little bit about these fairs. You see, I, I always, as Americans, you always hear about the April Fair in Sevilla. And uh, I went there and it was just incredible. But as Carlos said, it's uh, just the, it's the massive one. And it's like going to 200 wedding parties at the same time. Every family's got a tent and all of their, they're all dressed up and grandma and grandpa are there and all the kids are dancing with the uncles and aunts and it's just a wonderful cozy scene but either you got to be uh, uh, really clever socially or you're not going to get in because they're private tents um, the the it, it was I didn't I'm going to clarify with Carlos this horse connection because when I was there during the day it was overrun with beautiful horses and carriages and then at a certain time the police had the horses all go away and then it took on a nicer character without the horses for people in the streets and dancing and so on and uh, but it is the touristic big mammoth mother of all these April fairs now Carlos do you have many versions of this all over Andalusia is that the idea and is it only in April uh, yeah, you do have versions of this uh, pretty much everywhere in Andalusia, uh, but they're not in April. Uh, April Fair in Seville is one of the first ones, but then the, 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 the first are all spread out through the 
summer, the spring, the summer, and the fall. Oh, really? And okay. I think one of the latest is uh, in October. So you can find from the websites or the guidebooks when these would be. Absolutely. And and if you happen to be in Granada um, mm. or, or somewhere else, just check out because uh, sometimes it's fun to go to a feria that is in a, a little town. And, and what's the rationale for this fair? It's not a religious holiday. It's it's, it's not a, a harvest festival. What is it? No, it's just a, it's just the like party. The, the, <laughs> the, 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 the parting uh, time of the year where, where um, they celebrate uh, the horse, uh, the horses, and, and the traditions of music and, and foods. Eric, does that uh, answer your questions? That does very much. Muchas gracias. Yeah, de nada. All right, adios. adios. Mm-hmm. Julio in Connecticut. Thanks for your call. Uh, how are you? I'm traveling in March with my son to Spain, uh, to Madrid, and to Burgos, and uh, I'm a little worried about him and adjusting to the jet lag, and uh, you know, not being too much of a crankpot once we get over sure. there. You're going from the um, East Coast of the United States to Spain with a five-year-old. I've gone right. from the West Coast of the United States, uh, uh, to West Coast to Europe, uh, Spain, which would be nine hours instead of six hours, right. with kids every year throughout their lives. And the worst was when they were one or two or three, and they didn't know what the heck was going on, and they were up all night <laughs> screaming, you know, and I was just... Uh, I think everybody in the hotel moved out on those nights as our family was trying to get over jet lag. It was horrible. I remember standing in the stairwell with the, with Andy trying to uh, assure him that the sun will rise. It's dark now, but it's okay. You know, <laughs> The kids are just really um, out of whack. Um, right. Five years old, I wouldn't worry about it too much. There, I've got a photograph of my son literally sleeping with his face in the bowl of spaghetti. Um, Ann and I were having dinner on our first night in Italy, and it was very quiet. We thought, this is great, traveling with the kids. Looked over to Andy, and he's just snoring in his spaghetti. Jet lag hit him, and he was down. Down. But you just gotta um, you gotta force your way into European time zone. Frankly, you're gonna have a rough first day. Make them stay up. Uh, remember, jet lag hakes uh, bright air, bright light, fresh air, and exercise. So get out and walk and so on, and uh, expect a little bit of a 48 hour adjustment. But I think you'll be all right. I wouldn't. I think a lot of the solutions are, are worse, actually, more inconvenient than the problem itself. Yeah, sure. I, I agree. Did, did you talk to your uh, child? Would you talk, explain the the uh, the concept of of the whole jet lag and time change beforehand without help? I didn't do that, but I think that would be a very good uh, example of uh, thoughtful parenting. Wish I could right. try that again. <laughs> Carlos, <laughs> did you have a comment? Yeah, I just had a recommendation for you. If uh, the, the first couple of days you're in Madrid, you should take your kid to the zoo. Uh, the zoo in Madrid is, 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 pretty, is pretty good, and, and most people that I send there are pretty impressed. Um, and, you know, it's, it could be a good, uh, a good opportunity for him to break into the culture. Sure. Good luck, Julio. Thank you for Sounds your call. Helpful. Thanks so much, Rick. Bye now. Okay, bye. Melody in Bountiful, Utah. Melody, are you there? I'm here. Can you hear me? Thank you. Is is Bountiful your town? Uh, exactly. Beautiful name for a town. What's your question for Carlos? Well, actually, I mean, I, I, I just got back from the south of Spain. It was absolutely incredible. We um, happened upon a festival in uh, the Andalusia Mountains outside of Sevilla, and... Um, my question is, we were headed, we were going to head to the north of Spain, but we were just wondering, did we miss much by not going to the north of Spain? Would it be best if we went back and then traveled up through the north of Spain? Um, I think I think you're very right. Um, I think Spain is a is a big country with uh, too much uh, to see and very contrasted, or, um, a lot of contrast between the regions. And I don't think you can digest uh, Spain in just one trip. Uh, it's probably a good idea to go back and try to do the north. And you'll be completely surprised because uh, there's really nothing to do between the south and the north of Spain. Uh, the north of Spain is a lot more... Uh, you mean mo- they're completely different? Yeah, they're very different. The, uh, the north is very mountainous. The, the, the climate is completely different. There's great wine regions up there. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, and it's uh, and the towns are just uh, nothing to do. The culture is very different. It was a lot more... Uh, it was much longer Christian than the south of Spain. So the influence mm. of the Moors that you see in the south of Spain, you don't see in the, in the north. However, in the north, you, you have a lot more... Uh, Christian influence and, and Romanesque art and um, uh, more tribal uh, reminiscence in the different uh, regions. Melody, when you were there, how did you uh, did you handle jet lag? We had a call just asked about jet lag. How did you do with that? You know what we um, we we tried to sleep on the plane. My best advice for that young man that called is to give your child some Benadryl, let him sleep on the plane, and then when we got there. Uh, we we stayed up. We we didn't want to go to bed because we wanted to adjust to their time zone. So we went to the Prado, and then we would go out and walk. And it, we found ourselves falling asleep. If you'd sat 
don't sit in one spot for very long because we would sit down in the museum and actually fall asleep on the benches looking at... <laughs> you can see people sleeping in the museum and you know they just landed. Oh, yeah, you can. So you just you want to keep your body stimulated so that you're not um, wanting to go to sleep. And then that evening um, we stayed right in the heart of Madrid and we walked... Um, the street, it's very safe over there. I mean, I was just amazed because... Oh, you're up at midnight and it feels safe. Oh, it was so safe. As long as you're around people. Right. And, you know, it, we wore your money belt. How did you do with the food, Melody? Did you picnic much? We picnicked all the time. One of the things to, to remember is um, not the grass is... There's hardly any grass over there. And so it's not like you can sit and spread out a blanket on, on a lawn. They don't allow you to do that. We actually got in trouble by sitting on the lawn and eating our lunch because they want you off the lawn. There's plenty of picnic benches. To they make benches, yeah. yeah. And But we found that um, the restaurants were extremely expensive. We're non-alcoholic drinkers, and so um, we didn't order alcohol, but they charge for the water, and they don't have ice. <laughs> you know, we're used to that in the United right. States and plenty of water. So we found that it was better for us and our budget to eat out of the grocery store. And so we would just go and just get picnic items and eat them, and we were healthier and we felt better. And the restaurants are okay for like one meal a day, but... I think that's a good balance, one meal a day in a restaurant and picnic otherwise. And as you said, it's healthier and you can eat when you want to. And uh, also there's a lot of very inexpensive uh, kind of sandwich-to-go places. Yeah. Great, great thing. And we even went over to Morocco and we felt totally safe from Morocco um, to Spain. And our, our favorite our favorite place in the south of Spain is Tarifa. Me too. Yeah. Tarifa is wonderful. It's a, on, the, on the windy side of Gibraltar there, and consequently not so many tourists. Oh, it, was, it was just absolutely incredible. We would go back there and just stay for a few days if we could. Melody, yeah. thanks for your call. Thank you. Adios. Bye, Melody. Espera. Aún me quedan alegrías para darte Tengo mil noches de amor que regalarte Te doy mi vida a cambio de quedarte Espera, no entendería mi mañana si te fueras Y hasta te admito que tu amor me lo mintieras Te adoraría aunque tú no me quisieras Espera un poco, un poquito más para llevarte mi felicidad. Espera un poco, un poquito más. Me moriría si te vas. Espera un poco, un poquito más. Coming up, we tackle the culturally thorny issue of bullfighting. Carlos Galvin is our guest as we explore today's Spain on Travel with Rick Steves. Un poquito más. Then, Julio Astor of the Spanish Tourist Board gives us his take on one of the truly distinctive Spanish traditions, the siesta. As globalization muscles Spain into the global rat race, some say this elegant mid-afternoon break has no place in modern Spanish society. We'll find out more a little later in the program as we continue to travel with Rick Steves. It's an insider's guide to Spain and its distinctive culture on Travel with Rick Steves. Madrid-based tour guide Carlos Galvin is my guest. Carlos, I want to talk about bullfights because... You know, it's becoming uncool for bullfights. Obviously, it's uh, politically incorrect, uh, considering how cruel it is for the animal. Uh, on the other hand, when you go to Spain, you see bullfights on TV, uh, and, and it's still an ongoing part of Spanish culture. What, what's your take on bullfights from a tourist point of view? If somebody's curious about bullfights, is it a tradition that's being kept alive only because tourists are patronizing it? Um, I, I don't think so. I, I think uh, there's a lot of people in Spain that still uh, attend bullfight because it's a very deep, rude in the culture, there's a lot of people who still support it. I think in my generation, there may be less amount of people that are attending bullfights. Would it be small town, rather uneducated uh, sort of people that would still be pushing the bullfight culture, or is it across classes? It's hard to say, because uh, Madrid, the, the Madrid Bullfighting Festival in uh, San Isidro in the month of May, mm. 
uh, and the festival in in um, every day there's a fight in May, isn't there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and and also the one in Seville are still incredibly popular, and people pay uh, astronomical prices to go see the best bullfighters and also the best uh, breeds of bulls. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what to say about that, but uh, last year I was visiting a farm where they do like uh, breeding the uh, brave bulls, and I was talking to this French uh, gentleman who moved to the south of Spain, attracted by the beauty of the uh, of the animal, and uh, he took me around the ranch, and uh, we were talking about you know the different the, the bulls and the kind of life that they have and how they're raised to uh, to fight. And he was basically saying that bulls used to be a lot braver than they are today because uh, the farmers are raising those bulls to be less brave, so the bullfighter. Uh, doesn't have such a hard time, and there's not as many deaths because back in the uh, beginning of the 18th, uh, 19th century, there were many more bullfighters who died uh, doing this job. So it was more like a beast uh, fighting man, right. and and now know, it's almost dom more domesticated, more soft. Yeah, softer. now it's more domesticated, and, wow. and this this gentleman didn't seem to like that. Now there's uh, different levels to connect with the bullfighting culture. Uh, people who want to be Hemingway can go to the arena, and it's quite easy to get tickets. Right. Um, yeah. um, generally Sundays from uh, Easter through September, is that right? Yeah. And if you don't want to actually go to a bullfight, you'll see it on TV. And if a bullfight's playing somewhere, go down to a bar and have a uh, coffee con leche or a beer, and and watch it on the in the bar with all these guys who are really into it. And you can go to the bull arenas and many of the more historic ones and tour them. They have little museums there and so on. You can see where they where the matter prays in his chapel before going out, and you can see the uh, first aid station if 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 it's necessary and so on. Also, there's a lot of bull bars that are just draped in all sorts of bull paraphernalia and history and photographs and so on. Any thoughts on that, Carlos? Yeah, I, I just think that bullfighting is such a part of the culture, or, or it has been, and it, it still is. And whether you're uh, pro or against bullfighting, I think it's a cultural experience that you need to know about and you need to learn about, just like anything else. You know, It doesn't matter whether you, you're pro bullfighting, you're just learning about what it is and how deep... Uh, in the roots of Spain it is. And one thing I'd like to say, a lot of tourists don't want to go to bullfighting because they think they're perpetuating a tradition that they think is cruel. But I think you're saying that bullfighting is going to happen with or without tourists. I think so. Okay. Another question I have, Carlos, is the rise of Islam. Spain has a lot of Moorish people in the south uh, for many reasons. And I know as Europe is uniting, the EU is dealing with Europe being with a Christian heritage and a quickly rising Muslim population. My understanding is Granada is sort of the Islamic capital of Europe, and that's where some administrative offices are for the EU. They have a brand new mosque, and it was paid for by United Arab Emirates and Kuwait and so on. And mm -hmm. uh, this mosque is right there in the historic old town. It's a shining example of the Muslim heritage and community there, uh, there is a little struggle with the local community because they wanted to have an amplified call to prayer five times a day in the middle of Granada. Local people said, no, you can't amplify the call to prayer. Consequently, they have an unamplified call to prayer and five times a day, Islam unplugged, basically. Uh, what's your take on Islam in Spain and, and Granada being the, the capital of Islamic Europe? We're, we're seeing a lot of people coming from Morocco and from the rest of Africa and Spain. We're so close. We're only 15 kilometers away. And we're the first port of entry to the rest of Europe. We used to have, you know, before or in the times of Franco, very, very few. Today we have like a one million uh, Muslims in Spain and the, the figure is growing, uh, skyrocketing. So there's a, a big magnet. Uh, now there's a big controversy because for 300 years after the expelling of the Moors and the Sephardic Jews, Spain was practically a, a Catholic 99%. Mm -hmm. So now the government is having a hard time because we still, the government still gives money to the church. But now this uh, progressive government is bringing up the question, shall we give money to train the uh, imams or the Islamic teachers as well? Because after all, everybody's paying taxes. I mean, so those, Spain is integrating its Muslim citizens. Uh, yeah. And so that's a big debate on the table because the, the Catholic Church is still so uh, powerful in Spain that and, uh, they're uh, not real happy about that. So that's something we'll have to pay attention to. And that's yeah. unfolding uh, as mm -hmm. we travel. Yep. Absolutely. Carlos Galvin. Carlos is a friend of mine, lives in Madrid. He runs a travel agency there and specializes in helping orient Americans to visit his country using Madrid as a jumping off point. Carlos, thanks so much for sharing about Spain. Thank you very much, Rick. I should say gracias. Hasta pronto.
I'm Rick Steves, and this is Travel with Rick Steves. And well, let's just relax. We're talking siesta, and I've got with me um, a Spaniard who's probably done a lot of siesta ing, Julio Astor. He works in Chicago for the Spanish Tourist Office, and he joins us today to talk about a great tradition in Spain, the siesta. Julio, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you, Rick. Julio, tell us just basically the the traditional siesta. What does that mean to a, a Spaniard? Well, the siesta is actually the way we break our day. We normally work hard in the morning, we work hard in the evening, but we like to take a little break after a, de- a heavy uh, lunch that we take a little bit later than what the Americans are used to. Assuming somebody partakes in the siesta, what would be the schedule for the day then, Julio? Yes, well, I can tell you what my schedule was back in Madrid three years ago. Okay. And so I would, I would start working uh, at 9 in the morning, and I would stop at 2.30, uh, take a bus, go home, eat my lunch at 3. And then after lunch, I would you know, sit on the couch, watch a documentary, and fall asleep for about 15 to 20 minutes. A good siesta shouldn't be more than half an hour, because if you sleep too long, then it's not good for your overall feeling and for your body. Now, that's very interesting. I've heard other people say this. You don't go into bed, you go to the couch, and you don't yeah. have silence, but you have the TV on. What's, yeah, what's the deal there? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I couldn't fall asleep with the TV at night. I've never been able to do that, but for the siesta, it's like this has, there has to be some activity around or something. It's, it's a different kind of sleep. And then uh, 20 minutes would be max. It's sort of a, a little cat nap. Yeah, I would say half an hour is max. How, how do you get yourself fresh again after the cat nap? Is there any trick for that? Yeah, well, I would, I would just go, go to the bathroom and put some you know, water in my face. I see. That, that's it. And then you know, hit the street and go back, back to work. Now, how does the eating work into the siesta, Julio? I mean, you've got a big lunch, you said, at about yep. 3 o'clock. Give me the uh, traditional Spanish eating plan then. Yes, well, uh, we eat a, normally a very light breakfast, cafe con leche, so coffee with milk, and maybe tostadas, a couple of slices of bread with tomato or with olive oil. That's, that's the, the breakfast that we eat normally, you know, 8, 7.30, whatever. Then uh, we normally stop at mid-morning, so that's the secret why we were able to make it to, to 2.30 or 3. We stop for coffee or more often, if it's, if it's like 11 or 12, then we, we, we have a little beer or a glass of wine. With tapas in the morning, in late in the morning. Yeah, late in the morning. Okay. With you know, I would say between ten, anywhere between ten and twelve. And these would be professionals in in Madrid. Absolutely, or yeah, yeah. Or Everybody, you know, it's even institutionalized. So you have most companies have like a fifteen minute, twenty minute break. Then that gets you till about three o'clock when you're ready for your lunch. And uh, right. the lunch I gather is the big meal of the yeah, day. Yeah, that's the big meal of the day. That's two courses and you know fruit or. Whatever. And then you're ready for a nap after all that food. Absolutely. Then, yeah, we say actually la comida reposada, which means uh, the lunch, you have to rest to the yeah. lunch. And la cena paseada, which is after dinner, you should walk or move a little bit around. Okay, so you had a big meal at 3 o'clock. Then you're not really hungry until quite late for dinner. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because yeah. we have uh, our dinner is, uh, starts at about 9.30 or something like that. Yeah, it's amazing. You try to find a restaurant in Madrid at 8 o'clock, and they look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> Absolutely, they are closed. <laughs> so maybe you find the uh, the staff is eating at 8.30, and then if you're lucky, you can yeah. get served at 9. Yeah, but not not everywhere. You know, most places are not open at 9. Uh, I know it, yeah. So then uh, you're eating until 11 o'clock or something like that, and then uh, you're not ready to go to bed yet, so you stay up late. No, no. It's um, actually a funny thing in Spain these days is um, most uh, primetime programs are start at midnight. Primetime programs on TV. Yeah, on TV, yeah. And not only on the weekends, so during the week, too. And we're talking 21st century. This is not some cliche, but this is like today. No, no, it's absolutely today. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> like that last time I was there. Now, going back to breakfast, do you have a, a piece of bread or toast, you said, with olive oil on it and like a tomato paste? Yeah, tomato paste. or a, mm-hmm. Actually, the way to prepare is to rub tomato on the bread. You, oh. you put a lo- olive oil, a little bit of garlic, Well, this depends. People like it with garlic, some yeah. people like without garlic. But what is indispensable, what, what you really need there is a tomato. 
I had that for my first time this last trip with a friend who runs a little hotel on the Costa del Sol, and we took a walk along the beach, and we found this little beachside restaurant, and that's what they were serving for breakfast was toast with uh, oil and uh, tomato. Now, when you go into a bar in the morning, you can get a, a tortilla espanol. That's yeah. like a, a lot of people in America would think a tortilla, they think of a Mexican tortilla. Yeah. But a tortilla espanol is a potato omelet, right? Absolutely, yeah. It has nothing to do with the Mexican tortilla. So this is a jolt for a lot of Americans when they do go to Spain. Uh, a tortilla, is that something that just tourists order, or is that a standard breakfast thing? No, I would say that's pretty much the national dish. People know paella, but paella is actually a regional dish from the region of Valencia that mm. you know now you can find everywhere in Spain and around the world, but originally it's a regional dish. And Spain is, is you know, it's actually a, a lot of different cultures put together, and that starts with, with food. Okay. So, but tortilla española is one of the very few dishes that you cannot say which region does it comes from. I'm talking with Julio Astor, who's uh, where are you from in Spain, Julio? Well, actually, I, I grew up in Galicia in the northwest. Okay. Um, but since I was ten, uh, my parents moved to Madrid, so I consider myself more or less Madrid. That's sort of the uh, melting pot of Spain, I think. Yeah. From all corners, people end up in Madrid. Uh, now, you got the modern world hitting the traditions all over the place with globalization and so on. What's the corporate take on the siesta? I would think it's kind of tough for a multinational to come into Madrid and, and have their workers going home at two for a couple of hours. Yeah, that's, uh, that's causing you know, a lot of friction, uh, I would say, for the last 20 years or so. So it's an ongoing process. There are some companies already... Um, that have established what we call Jornada Americana, that would be from, you know, 8 to 4. The what Americana? Jornada Americana, so the like the American day or... The American schedule. American schedule, yeah. It's just work harder. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's work all, you know, from, from 8 to 4 or whatever with a very brief yeah. break. But, you know, the, the advantage of this is, you know, nowadays with the big cities, Madrid and Barcelona, a lot of people doesn't live close to where they work. So the problem with our traditional schedule is, is, not, is not really functional. Uh, the commute time was not considered in. In the, in the old days, you just walked down the street to get home from work. Absolutely. That's it. So you, you find a lot of people actually lost huh. uh, in this two-and-a-half hours break, huh. uh, trying to find a place to rest for so, a while. So what does a worker do? if they, if, Let's say they commute an hour in, from the suburbs into Madrid, and they got two hours for lunch, they can't go home and come back. So are there little impromptu siesta oases that people can go to for a, a snooze and a lunch? Yes. Actually, you know, uh, beauty salons and day spas are having a ball with, with, this, with this friction right now, with this, this time difference. So, so you go to the beauty salon and you just recline and they yep. fiddle with your hair? Yeah, they, you they do your, your, your manicure or your pedicure or whatever you, you take your siesta. It sounds like, uh, how do you say, la dolce vita in Espanol? Yeah. <laughs> la, la, si, la dolce vita, we use the same word. You use the same Italian. <laughs> oh, that's great. So now, are the workers just um, going with this new 8 to 4 routine, or is there some sort of organization to pr protect the traditional siesta? Well, I, I would say since you know most people are, are living away from their workplace, especially uh, working moms and, and younger people are more fond of this new schedule. Okay, so it's a modern. It, yeah. It's the modern way to go. It's yeah. sort of um, it's sort of inevitable, I suppose. Julio, does the siesta have anything to do with winter or summer? Does it change? Does it have anything to do with the hot places and cold places? Well, I'm I'm sure I'm pretty sure it originated more in the south, but you know it it's really it's really healthy. I mean, I can say. Uh, during the evening, I was really energetic. And if you've been in, in Sevilla in July, you know it from 1 till 3 is not a good time to work. You want to curl up in the shade somewhere. And it's, I think it's going to live for a long time in those, in those areas because the weather really doesn't allow you to, to work at you know, 4 or 5 in the afternoon. It's impossible. Now, how do the schools, Julio, how do the schools incorporate this siesta plan into uh, student schedules? Well, it's actually not incorporated. Schools uh, have a much more similar schedule to what they have here in the States. So that's one reason why you can sleep your siesta comfortably at home, but your kids are in school. Ah, it all works out, doesn't it? Yeah, so that's one reason mm. more that, you know, uh, let's say mature males like siesta a lot. You mean older guys that just like yeah. to fall asleep so, with the newspaper on yeah, the belly? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's kind of a very traditional thing. 
So what's the modern take on the siesta way of living just from a health point of view? What do uh, doctors and people who measure stress and so on, how, how do they uh, consider the siesta? Well, I've, I've read that it's really good for, uh, for stress because it allows, it allows you to break your, your day in two. So it's not overwhelming. None of the two halves are overwhelming. And your, your body has some time to you know, replenish and your, your brain can take a break. Um, so it's it's actually relaxing. And people don't mind working then until eight o'clock or something. Well, it's the way it is. You know, the way we work is also very social. I was going to say, is it? It's it's not just about taking a nap. It's about enjoying a good lunch with family and friends, isn't it? Sure, it is. That might not be the German way of life, but it's certainly the Spanish way of life. <laughs> sure, it is. So, is the siesta unique to Spain, or is it all over the Mediterranean world? Well, I was dining a year ago with with a colleague from uh, India who told me in his region in India they sleep siesta too. I was was very surprised because I didn't know of any other country. Actually, the word siesta is internationally known uh, without translation. Uh, Some people would say a nap, but everyone understands siesta. Basically, the siesta, it's designed in the traditional days when people didn't have to commute a long ways. It it kind of fits the rural, small-town lifestyle a little better. Yeah, and Um, it it will still live there. It'll still live there, but as as Madrid and the big cities um, embrace all this globalization and multinationals and so on, they're going to get kind of with the uh, 8 to 4, 9 to 5 kind of rut. Yeah, it's dying out. I think the government government offices will be the last last place where you will have that traditional schedule. Traditions live longer in the, you know, the government offices. Of course, your, your work is to promote tourism to Spain. You work at the Spanish tourist office here in the United States, telling people what a great country you have. And how should the traveler incorporate the siesta into his game plan for enjoying Spain? Give well, us some advice. I, I would say um, they should incorporate it in, in any case. There's not, you know, the schedule is not a problem when you're on vacation. And I would say eight out of ten Spaniards sleep siesta religiously every day on their vacation. I, I certainly do. So this is a case where, um, you know, like they say, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. Go local, embrace the local style, and it's just, you're just going against the grain to try to eat lunch when, when nobody else is eating lunch and trying to go to bed early and so on. It just doesn't work. So no, take that you... siesta, plan on staying out late, uh, plan on eating at 11 o'clock. I mean, the kids are out playing soccer in the streets at midnight, and uh, don't go for a big, heavy uh, ham and eggs breakfast, huh? That's right, yeah. Do you, have you gotten used to the ham and eggs here in the United States for breakfast? Yes, I, I actually do the opposite. So I live here and I try to, to do the things that the Americans do. You're a good traveler. Julio Astor from the Spanish Tourist Office, thank you very much for giving an insight uh, to all of us travelers about the siesta in Spain. No, thank you, Greg. It was, it was my pleasure. All right, adios. Adios. Bambolio, Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. There's more online in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Join us next time as we travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is brought to you by American Airlines. With their new Advantage Award booking tool, it's easier than ever to book to over 800 Advantage Award destinations online at aa.com. American Airlines knows why you fly.